Well, we're looking, as I said, at this new creation and, uh, and what does that mean? And it's been a series that we've been in pretty much for the whole part of the year, the whole first part of the year here, this amazing series of looking at what is a disciple. And, uh, and, and you know, it, because one of the things that's really so important to us here at Calvary is coming together to know Christ so that we can go and make him known. That's what the banners are. And and we've looked at this idea that it's such a thrill of hope to know Christ. And as we go and make him known in the world, the weary world gets a chance to rejoice. And so that's what drives us here. And it's the commission that's been left for us by Jesus as a church. And so as we look at what does it take to enter into that? And what that means is for us who are his disciples, to be taking that message and making disciples who can then make disciples. And so to start out with, we thought we'd start and look and say, well, what exactly is a disciple? And we know and realize that first and foremost, a disciple is a truly devoted follower of Jesus. It's someone who has come to a point in their life where they've trusted in Jesus alone for their salvation. They've realized that the sin in their life has separated them from God. And because of that separation, the relationship with God that designed to have has been broken. And it's only by coming to God and asking him to forgive us through Jesus Christ that that relationship can be restored. And as that relationship is restored, we become a follower of Jesus, devoted to him. And so at its core, to be a disciple is to be a follower of Jesus. But there's many more things that Scripture says about what a disciple is. Now, we've got to be careful because when we look at that, a lot of times what we can do is just begin to look at these things like a checklist. And, okay, well, I'm that, I'm that, I'm that, not that, I'm that, you know. And, and sometimes it can become even a, a strain of, of some sort of legalism to try to do these things to prove that I'm a disciple. But I would say to you that more than that, to understand that when you come into that amazing relationship with God that's possible through the forgiveness of Jesus, and, and when we come into that relationship, it draws you into an intimacy with God that allows you to know his presence and to have his presence in your life. And, and as you come into that, that place in your life where you experience that presence of God and begin to live in that, there's these identifying characteristics that become part of your life. And that's what we're looking at as we look at what does it mean to be a disciple. There's these defining characteristics. And what those are helpful for is as you stay close and in that intimate relationship with God, as you begin to see some of these characteristics maybe not being part of your life or, or you see other things that are coming into your life, you can realize that you're drifting from God. You're drifting from his presence. And so these things allow you to know that and allow you to make the course corrections you need to make. Today we're looking at an amazing truth and that amazing truth is that a disciple is a new creation. 
And this is a passage of scripture that you may have heard preached several times, and, and, um, and, and it's an important part of scripture. It's found in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and we'll be focusing on verses 16 through 21. But to start, I'd just like to read from verse 14 and read through chapter 6, verse 1. So I'm in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, starting in verse 14. For the love of Christ controls us, because we've concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who was for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, that we, in, and in him, we might become the righteousness of God. Working together with him then, we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. It's an amazing passage, and there's just so much in here, and I'm so excited to be sharing this with you today and to be looking at it together as we look at what it means to be a new creation. Now, I remember when I was a kid, and I would hear this passage speech, or teach, taught on, it would, it would, I would get wrapped up in the reconciliation, because that's a big word, and it's like, it's, it's repeated five times in this passage, you know, reconcile, reconciliation, and, and, and I don't know about you, but that's not a word that finds itself into my daily vocabulary, right? And so I, I, I used to just sit and wonder, what in the world does reconciliation mean anyway? And, and a lot of times I'd be so focused on that, I wouldn't listen to what the passage means. So um, we'll talk about reconciliation when we get to that part in the passage, but it is important to realize that that's what it means to be a new creation. So, first and foremost, as we look at a disciple being a new creation, the first thing we see is that a disciple has a new mindset. Okay, a disciple who's a new creation has a new mindset. And that's found in the first two verses that we're looking at here today. From now on, therefore. All right, and so when we step into a passage and Whenever it says, therefore, you always need to go back to see what it's there for, right? And, and so as we look back, it's this idea of Paul saying, and, and as we realize, Paul, in writing this, this letter to the church in Corinth, we call it 2 Corinthians, but in actuality, it's probably 4 Corinthians, because there's a letter that was written before 1 Corinthians that God, in his sovereignty, chose not to maintain for us. And, and so 1 Corinthians is actually the second letter that Paul had written to the church in Corinth. And then there was a letter in between 1 and 2, so that would have been the third letter. So this is the fourth letter that he's writing to this church in Corinth that we know about. The one thing we know about Paul is he wrote a lot of letters, right? And, we, and 
What's so wonderful to know is that the, the Bible that we hold, the scriptures that we have, are the scriptures that God determined would be the ones that he would use to help us know how to live for him. There were some letters that were written that weren't scripture. The ones that we have are the ones that God determined would be scripture for us. And so we take a look at this letter to the church in Corinth, 2 Corinthians, and we see that this is a letter that Paul is writing to them. And Paul loves this church in Corinth. It's, a, it's, it's this amazing group of people. And so they're wrapped up in a whole bunch of stuff, and Paul's had to do some tough teaching on them, and, and they've started to doubt whether or not Paul was even somebody to be considered, because there were all these other people who were coming around saying, ah, Paul's nothing to think about, and, and Paul's like, what happened? Because you know, you know I'm an apostle, and you know I loved you, and you know I gave you the message of truth, and, and you know, you know I, I never was a burden to you, and and so he's reaching out to them to help them understand that the message that he gave was the message of God for them. And, and so he pours his heart out. It's probably the most personal in some ways of all of Paul's letters. And so as he comes, he's saying, this is the, the ministry that we've been given. And so the passage that we're looking at is, is, is him talking about his ministry that he's been given. But as we look at it today, we can see it's a ministry that's been transferred to us. So from now on, therefore, goes back to Paul saying, listen, it's the love of Christ that controls us. And he's talking about himself. He's saying the love of Christ controls me. It compels me. It's what drives me. I've, you know, we talked about the love of God, that a disciple knows love and knows the love of God. We looked at that last week with the amazing testimony and, and to realize that a disciple really knows the love of God. And when you know the love of God, the love of God controls you. And so Paul says, listen, the love of God controls me. And, and it's so important because those who live no longer live for themselves, but for the one who for their sake died and was raised. And so if you've come to a place where, where you've come to know the love of God, you've trusted him, you've been forgiven, you've been born again, you don't live for yourself anymore. You live for the one who loves you. You are so overtaken by the love of God in your life that it controls you, then it controls what you do. And Paul says, because of that, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him that way no more. This is a significant passage. If you have NIV, it might say we regard no one from a worldly point of view. And so this word, flesh, that Paul uses, and, and, and Paul was, ooh, he was a brilliant guy. And so the way he uses this is so complex, it means different things at different contexts. But there's this, this idea of understanding that the times in which Paul lived were times that were greatly influenced by the Greek mindset. And you, you remember Alexander the Great came through and conquered all the lands and, and brought with him a Hellenistic way of looking at things, okay? There was a, a Greek mindset that came into the world as it was conquered by Alexander the Great. And of course, that poured over into the Roman Empire as well. And so at the time that Paul was writing this letter, this Greek mindset or this Hellenistic mindset had taken hold. Now, the Greek mindset, 
you may realize, if, if you studied mythology, right, is that during this time of Hellenistic thinking, the gods became created in the image of man. Okay, and so there was a change at that point in time to where gods were now viewed not as parts of nature or creation or anything, but actually created like man. And so they made gods in the image of man. And as they did that, along brought all the flaws of man into the gods that they worshipped. And so as we look at that, we see the, the, the roots in many ways of what we are reaping today in humanism. And so humanism is this idea that, that humans are the center of the universe and that, and that we are able to determine what's right and what's wrong and what's good and what's bad and, and that everything wraps around us and that we're autonomous and, 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 and that, that raises a, a huge level of individualism and those types of things. And so when Paul steps in and says, we regard no one according to the flesh, he's talking about we've moved beyond viewing people in accordance with that which is temporary in this world. See, if you come to a place where you trust in Christ as your Savior, you're born again. And, and what that means is the spirit inside of you that was dead is now made alive in Christ. And so now you have a different mindset. You have a different vantage point. You see things differently than you did before. And that's amazing because now all of a sudden you have a brand new experience. I've asked you before, how long are you going to live? Right? How, how long will you live? And, and as you stop to think about that, you can think, well, maybe 80, 90, you know? And, and you begin to process things according to that. See, that's thinking according to the flesh. Because the moment that you trust Christ as your Savior, how long are you going to live? Like forever, Right? And, and forever and ever and ever, okay? Amen. And, and so as we look at that and we see that, we begin to realize that our vantage point changes, our mindset changes, and we begin to realize that this world we live in is a temporary world. It's a temporary world with a temporary thought process. And, and if we focus on that, we're missing the perspective that God has brought into our lives, that eternal perspective that, that allows us to realize that when we see people, we don't see them any longer as temporary beings. We see them rather as, as, as created in the image of God with the expressed purpose of being in a relationship with him. And so as we encounter people along the way, we don't encounter them as just individual people. Rather, we encounter them as those made in the image of God. And we begin to see them differently. And we begin to realize that as eternal beings, the decisions I make, the reactions I have, and those types of things do not just impact this temporary existence, but they have an eternal consequence. And so I begin to realize that as I engage with people along the way, as I'm moving along in time, I begin to realize that the encounters I have with people, that God has brought them into my path so that I could have an impact for him, and I begin to view this 
temporary or fleshly or worldly situation is much different. I see it as the opportunity to impact eternity for God as he works through me. See, even though we once regarded Christ, no more. Therefore, Paul goes on to say, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. So if you are in Christ, you're a new creation. God will come at a point in time, and he will make a new heaven and a new earth. All right, and we will dwell forever in his presence, free from the presence of sin. Those of us who trusted in him will be part of that new creation. And so that's part of what Paul's talking about here. And he's saying that if you are in Christ, you are a new creation. Now to be in Christ is to be at a point in time where you've trusted Christ, as I said, and you've asked God, God, I, I long, I turn, I repent from the sins that I've done, and I ask that you would take my life, and I ask that you'd come into my life. And so the idea of Christ being in you carries along this idea that you're in Christ as well. But how that plays out is in your new creation. The old has gone and the new has come. Behold, hark, whoa, the new has come is what that translates as. So as you look at that, to realize what's gone. Because I don't know about you, I came to a point in life where I trusted Christ as my savior and then I started to live my life perfectly. Right, Karen? Yeah. She's thinking about it, even as we speak. Well, there was that one time. Yeah. See, I have a new spirit inside of me. I've been born again. But I've got this flesh that I carry around, this old nature. And see, that's, I believe, really what Paul's talking about, to be in Christ is to be this new creation. The old has passed away and the new has come. Now in Romans 5, we get a glimpse into what that means. It's this word imputation. Or, or, and, and imputation is this huge word, but it means what's been, what's been ascribed to you. And, and so what we see is in Romans chapter 5, Paul talks about what it means to stand before God in Adam. And see, when, when you're born... You're born with a sin nature. You, you are born in Adam. So as you stand before God, God sees you as being before him in Adam. And, and what that means is that you're a sinner by nature, but it didn't take you long to choose to sin, right? So you're a sinner by nature and by choice. And you stand before God guilty, guilty in Adam. You, you have offended Almighty God, you have sinned against him. You have chosen disobedience, and so you stand in Adam. When you come to a point in time, by God's grace, when he reveals to you your deep need for the forgiveness that only can be given by him, and you turn to him and you ask him for forgiveness, and, and, and you, you repent and you exchange your life of sin for Christ's life of righteousness, you now stand before God in Christ. So there's been this amazing change. The old is gone. You no longer stand before God in Adam. You now stand before God in Christ, which really is the only way 
you can be before God. You can't stand before him in Adam because when you stand before him in Adam, he says, get away from me, I never knew you. And that's, you will, it's an internal choice for separation from God. And so when Paul comes and says, if anyone is in Christ, it's a new creation. The old has passed away. No longer do you stand before God in sin. The new has come. You now stand before God in Christ, before him. Amen? And, and so you stand before God righteous, just as if you had never sinned, credited to your account. So you have a new mindset. You're new. You are now in Christ. You are now one who understands the perspective of what God is doing. Maybe not completely. Maybe not fully. But it's different. It's new. So you have a new mindset, a new vantage point. Disciples, a new creation. Secondly, you have a new message. A disciple has a new message. And, and that message is found in the next couple of verses. This is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. So here comes all these big words, reconciliation, reconcile, be reconciled, all these things. Basically, what is reconciliation? As it relates to God and his relationship to us, reconciliation is God reaching into a world that was hostile to him, a world that was in enmity with him, and, and making a way for the right relationship with God to be restored. In essence, reconciliation is a right relationship being restored. And when we say restored, it doesn't mean that it's going back to something that was because it's a new thing. And so reconciliation is not going back to what was, it's going forward to what was intended. And so it's the rec to be reconciled to God is to be able to step into the relationship with him that he designed for you to have that you never experienced until you were in Christ. And it is peace with God. It is the peace that comes from being in relationship with him. It's a powerful thing if you've experienced it. Amen? And so when we look at that, Paul says, listen, this is from God. God is the initiator of this. We would never seek God on our own. We won't. We won't move toward him. And there is nothing we can do to reconcile ourselves to God. It just can't be done because the standard, the bar, which is required to be in the presence of God is nothing we can do on our own. And so this all comes from God. And through Christ, he reconciled us to himself. We can't reconcile to him, but he can reconcile us to himself. He can restore the relationship. Now, what does that mean and what does that look like? One of the commentaries I read explained it like this. God's act of reconciliation is summed up in his canceling the debt of sin. All right? So, so this, he's able, we're able to be reconciled to him because the debt of sin has been canceled. Now, that, 
that sin is transgressions. In our text, you see the transgressions. Now, transgressions are not simply sins that somebody commits in ignorance. These are deliberate sins. Doing what we know to be disobedient to God. Defiant mutiny, which is far more serious and creates this unbridgeable gulf between God and us. So transgressions are those things that you knowingly do wrong. Anybody ever do anything you know is wrong, that you know is sin? Okay, that's a transgression. And, and it's defiant mutiny of the authority of God. But God wiped clean the register of transgressions through Christ's death applied to our lives. The files containing the records of our shortcomings and offenses have been deleted. Amazing. But the disregard of human sinfulness would be an expression not of love, but of transcendent indifference. So this is not simply a disregard of sinfulness. Because if God were to step in and just say, well, okay, you get a redo. All right, that wasn't that bad. Okay, I know you didn't mean it. Okay, if he did that, if he just had a disregard for it, it would be transcendent indifference. It wouldn't be love. What has changed then is not his fundamental disposition toward mankind. We still are are under his wrath because of our sin, but rather the means of dealing with the sinfulness that has caused the state of estrangement. So in other words, sin must be punished. It must be punished. And so reconciliation requires that sin is punished. And so it's not that God just overlooks our sins. It's that the punishment for our sins is paid for by Christ, by God himself on the cross so that his disposition toward us can change. And that's what allows this reconciliation, this restoration of a right relationship to happen. And so he doesn't count our trespasses against us. And then he entrusts us with that message of reconciliation. That message of what we've received, he entrusts us with that new message. You see, once you come to a place in your life where you realize and recognize that the willful sins in your life have separated you from an almighty and holy God who created and designed you to be in an intimate relationship with him. And when you come to a point, by God's grace, he reveals to you that that relationship has been severed and that you've earned eternity separated from him because of that. But by his grace, you realize that and you come to him and you say, God, I'm a sinner. (laughs) I ask that you'd forgive me. I repent. I turn from my willful disobedience and I ask that you would move in my life and help me to become one who who longs to obey you, who longs to follow you. I exchange my life of sin for Christ's life of righteousness and, and there's a transaction that happens and at that moment in time, you become reconciled to Almighty God and you have a new message. You have a message that no longer do you need to live in the pain of of sin and and unforgiveness and bitterness and anger and, and all of those things. Those things have been taken away from you and you have had a relationship restored with Almighty God and your message is no longer the message of this world. Your message is the message of heaven. It's a new message. It's a message that you could be reconciled to God 
And you no longer have to live in the guilt and the shame of the sin that's in your life. It's a new message. And you no longer use the message of this world that God is not to be considered. You're a new creation. You have a new mindset. You have a new message. And finally, you have a new mission. There's a new mission that you're given. And this gets really exciting, I think. And it's there in 520. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. We are ambassadors for Christ. And I love this. We know what ambassadors are. We, we see those in our, in our culture. Ambassador is someone who's sent into another country to speak for us. And, and so an ambassador doesn't speak for themselves, they speak for the country they represent or for the person who has sent them. Perhaps sometime you'd had somebody come to speak to you on behalf of another. That person who came to speak to you is an ambassador. And so we look at ambassador and, and, and Paul says, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. Stop and think about that for a minute. The most amazing message ever to be known is the message of the gospel of Jesus. Amen? I mean, do you know Jesus? I mean, is there anything better than knowing Jesus? Is there any message you have which is of greater importance or greater significance than the fact that Jesus saves? The song we started out with is Our God Saves. And, and it's like we sang it like 12 or 14 times. I don't know how many times it's repeated in that message. And I wonder, by the time you got to the end of it, were you like, okay, I said it already. God saves. Amen. Amen. And, and, and wow, if he doesn't, you see, so we have this amazing message and God makes his appeal through us. And it amazes me really because I think of God saying, I have this amazing message and I need the entire world to know this message. I know I'll entrust people to give that message. I think I would have come up with a less, you know, I, something a little more, you know, right? How are we doing on this? How are we doing? God makes his appeal through us as ambassadors, right? If, if we aren't speaking that message, it's not getting spoken. Now listen, ambassadors, when we think about it in the world we live in, we send ambassadors to other country. If it starts to get dangerous or there's hostility that comes in, we pull people out, right? We pull the ambassadors out. God does exactly the opposite. God sends his messengers into danger. God sends his ambassadors into a hostile environment, into a place where, where everybody is thinking in the flesh, in 
according to the flesh. And they're thinking of, and so it's a hostile environment toward God. And into that hostile environment, God sends his ambassadors. He sends them into an environment where there's false hope, false truth, a false search for peace, where pride is embraced and and celebrated, where pain is prevalent, where fear reigns, into a realm of the pretender prince. Into that realm, God sends his ambassadors with this amazing message. We are sent into that realm with the message of the king. And it's the message of reconciliation. It's the message of real peace, real hope, real love, real freedom, real life, real truth, real forgiveness. It's the message of humility and grace. It's the message which will be rejected by most, but for those who embrace the message, it becomes new life, real life. And we get to be those ambassadors with that message of hope. I mean, who? If we were outwardly expressive, we'd be saying amen. (laughs) Fortunately, Paul says, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Listen, there's a reconciliation that happens that moment that you trust Christ. There's a reconciliation that happens and you now stand before God in a right standing. But as he writes to this church in Corinth that's so sucked into the culture, this church in Corinth is a a Hellenistic church. It's, 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 It's in this community where materialism is enormous and where people are impressed by people who have titles and, and all of these things. And it's, it's so much like the world we live in today. More morality is, is in the tubes. And I mean, it's just like everything about it. And as he's writing to them, he's saying, listen, be reconciled to God. If you're an ambassador and you're not living out the truth of the message that you've been given to take, how are people going to know the message that you have? So when he says to them, be reconciled to God, what he's saying is be more and 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 more reconciled to God. Continue in your life to to lean into that intimate relationship with God that he longs for you to have. Continue to seek to be in the presence of God and to let the presence of God be in you. To be so aware of the presence of God that, that you are standing before him in Christ and that you're reconciled to him. And if there's anything in your life that's causing you to see things in a way that aren't the way God would have them, that you're peeling them apart and that you're continuing to lean into that amazing relationship that Jesus died so that you could have with Christ. And he goes on to say, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Wow. Oh my goodness. That is a verse. And maybe you know the song. He became sin who knew no sin that we might become his righteousness. Remember that song, anybody? See, you just memorized scripture. Amen. It's not hard. Okay, and so as we look at this and realize this, for our sake, for our sake, God made Jesus to be sin, even though Jesus knew no sin. 
okay, that's confusing. Because I thought Jesus, in order to die for us, had to be sinless. Yes, Hebrews 4.15 tells us that we do not have a high priest, Jesus, who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet was without sin. See, Jesus is the sinless, flatless lamb. He's the sacrifice that's able to be offered because he lived as the perfect man, and he lived as the man who was able to fulfill everything, and he lived in absolute and complete obedience to God the Father. And in so doing, he became worthy of of taking on our sin on the cross. But as he did that, God made him to be sin, even though he had known no sin. Now what that means is that he died a sinner's death. He died the death of one who had sinned. He was treated as a sinner by God in his death, even though he had never sinned. He bore the weight of all the sin on himself as he died and was treated as a sinner. And the reason he did that is so that we could become the righteousness of God. Now stop and think about that. It's not just that we could emulate the righteousness of God. It's that we could become the righteousness of God. One of the verses that the guys read for us earlier, and we read it kind of together, is Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 24. And it says, put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. So there's this, there's this amazing truth that Galatians talks about Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. So he actually became the curse for us. He became sin for us. He took the sinner's death upon him so that we could become his righteousness. We became sin that, or he became sin that we may become his righteousness. Now, what does that mean? And how does it play out? Well, remember, we're his ambassadors. And so we, we go into the world with this amazing new message of reconciliation. And in order for that to be the case, God actually puts the message in us and, and he takes this and he makes us his very righteousness. We become his righteousness. So we live the life of a righteous. Just as Jesus died the death of a sinner, we live the life of the righteous one of God. Now, how? How do we how, how do we do that? How is that even possible? In Galatians chapter 2, Paul talking to the church in Galatia gives a clearer understanding of the cross of Jesus. You see, we see the cross of Jesus and we see the place where Jesus died and we see the place where our sin was placed on the cross and and we see that, that in the death of Jesus we have salvation available, but listen, there's so much more. There is so much more. Listen, if all that Jesus did was to come down and, and, and die so that we get a, a get-out-of-hell-free get card, listen, you're missing the extent of what salvation is all about and what the death of Christ is all about. 
The death of Christ has come into the world so that we could have a relationship with God that has been restored so that as we wait for that moment in time where he says, now come into my presence, and when we step into his presence to live forever free from the presence of sin, at the same time here as we look at the not yet aspect or the already part of our salvation, it's that fact that God is with us now and living with us now and to realize that the cross of Christ draws us to the cross as well and Paul says I have been crucified with Christ so that I no longer live but Christ lives in me the life I live I live by faith in the one who loved me and gave himself for me see the cross is the place where not only Christ dies but I have to die I have been crucified with Christ. That old self, that old man standing before God in Adam has to be done away so that I could stand before God in Christ, in his righteousness, dressed in his righteousness, clothed in his righteousness, not pretending to be in his righteousness, not acting as though I were, not playing the role, but actually living out his righteousness in my life in a world that desperately needs to see that there's something that happens when you're reconciled with God that changes you and allows you to live in freedom. Christ bore the weight of our sin so that we could bear the weight of his righteousness. Christ bore the weight of our sin so that we could bear the weight of his righteousness. Could I suggest to you the weight of the righteousness of Christ is the yoke of Matthew eleven twenty eight, where Jesus says, take my yoke upon you, it, my burden is light. And if you've carried around the burden of sin and it has weighted you down, you've carried around shame and guilt and sin and and despair and despondency and fear and anger and bitterness and addictions, if you've carried that weight around, you know how heavy it is. And if you carry the righteousness of Christ, the righteousness of God, if you've carried that, you know that instead of walking around like this, you walk around like this because I'm free to stand in the presence of God. Working together with him then, we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. Working together with Jesus. See, that's what it means to be the ambassador, is taking Christ who is in you into the world. And maybe this happens verbally. Maybe it doesn't. Listen, if you are living out this reconciled relationship with God, people will be drawn to you to ask you, what in the world is wrong with you? And you say it has nothing to do with what's in the world. It has to do with what's out of this world. And if you want an out-of-this-world experience, I will introduce you to an out-of-this-world Savior who would love to rescue you and ransom you. And you work together with him, and I implore you, I appeal, do not take the grace of God in vain. Don't, Don't experience this reconciliation with God and do nothing with it. Let it change your life so that it can impact others. How is your life different because you're a new creation? And how are you working together with Jesus?
to make the gospel known, this amazing message of the love of God. Father, amazing God, that you would make us a new creation. Lord, we're hostile toward you. We are hostile toward you. We have been in enmity with you. We have dis- <laughs> and yet you reach into our world and make it possible for us to have a relationship with you that's far beyond anything we could have ever imagined. You are an amazing God. Forgive us, Lord, for the times we've taken this message in vain. Forgive us for the times that we we haven't allowed it to change our lives. Forgive us for the times that we've held on to that to that old self instead of letting the new self pour through our lives. Change us, Lord. Shape us, mold us. Use us. We long to be your ambassadors. Make your appeal through us. Let our stories declare your glory. We pray this in your name. Amen. Amen. Could I ask you please to stand? Hear God's good word for you as we head into this amazing week that's waiting for us. And it's in Hebrews, last chapter. Now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, may he equip you with everything good that you may do his will, will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen? Amen. Oh, God bless you. I release you to a week of work, witness, and worship. God bless.